Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. We were at a restaurant the other day, and outside on their patio was a no smoking sign. So I've been thinking a lot about that the no smoking sign. When I was a kid, it was the 70s, the golden age of suburban house parties. The, the basement in our house wasn't finished per se, but it was all set up for entertaining. My dad worked at the TV station and he had acquired a set piece that was a great long dark wood bar that fit the width of the basement at one end. And it had a mirror that went all along the wall behind it. I have a couple of photos I'll post on the Totally Fantastic title Facebook page. It was really cool. I remember, too, that we had like a couple of banners that I believe were BC Lions banners, though. Why? Because my dad was an Edmonton fan. But these banners hung floor to ceiling to help hide the lack of paneling or drywall on the walls. And it made the place look all hip, (laughs) along with all the other super spiffy decor of the era. So... So my folks had these big parties and I'd be upstairs sleeping through it all. And they had all these ashtrays because lots of people smoked, though my folks were non-smokers themselves. We had this little set of stackable ashtrays in a variety of colors that sat out on a side table. And when I was a kid, I used to play with them when I had to pick them up to dust the furniture. As time went on... My folks thought more about it. The The big party in the basement days wore down, and they tended to only have smaller dinner parties with one or two couples. And of course, this was also the era where restaurants started having no smoking sections, which, though better than sitting right among all the smokers, was still crazy because you usually had to walk right through the smoking section to get to the non-smoking section, not to mention the whole, you know, physics thing about air circulation and fun stuff like that. Meanwhile, back at home, it, it took a while, but eventually my folks realized that they really didn't care for the cigarette smoke. So they asked their friends to sit outside on the covered deck to smoke which their friends were fine with because, you know, it's about hanging out. It's about being together. Those little stackable ashtrays, they no longer sat out, but they were sent into a drawer to be pulled out only when needed. And eventually, this took even longer because sometimes it's hard to set boundaries and stick to them when it affects your friends, you know, people you love. You want to avoid conflict. But finally, my folks said, hold on a second, this is our house, and we're allowed to make the rules in our house. So they said, if someone wants to smoke, we have the right to ask them to go stand down in the alley, because we'd rather they didn't smoke on our property at all. It's a pleasant spot, lots of trees and plants, not a ton of cars going up and down, not a huge hardship. Of course, more and more of their friends had quit smoking, so it became less and less of an issue. The stackable ashtrays vanished, probably got sent to the Sally Ann, I don't know. Now out in the world, the health effects of smoking and secondhand smoke on non-smokers became clear. It was widely known, and it is no longer in dispute. In July of 2000, the city of Vancouver implemented a smoking ban in all public places, which included restaurants, bars, billiard halls, bingo halls, bowling alleys, and casinos. Designated smoking rooms were allowed for a while, but then the province-wide ban came in in January of 2008. Now, there's a smoking ban in public spaces all across Canada, with variations in the details depending on the jurisdiction. Now, there was quite a hue and cry about this when it began in Vancouver. I remember hearing about the fear that restaurants and bars were going to go bankrupt because all the smokers were going to be just so mad. But in fact, what happened was that all the people who didn't tend to go out because they didn't like all the smoke everywhere started going out and giving their business, spending money in places they didn't used to frequent. Now, see, my folks weren't saying 
we don't want to be friends with you anymore. They weren't even saying, you can't smoke. They were just saying, you can't do it here. And because those people loved my parents, they respected that rule. The desire to still keep company with them was greater than the desire to fight them on their smoking boundary. And out in the world, eventually the hue and cry died down and everyone got used to it. And now smokers go out to restaurants and bars and the movies and everywhere alongside the non-smokers and they smoke where it's allowed. Because it was more and more understood that the no smoking sign is not a violation of smokers' rights, whereas letting them smoke anywhere they wanted was a violation of everyone else's. The no smoking sign does not say, you can't smoke. You just can't do it here. For the protection of other patrons and the people who work here, you can't do it here. You may recall, last week, Rickenbacker and Phoenix were a little concerned that Griffin's nice lunch with her sister Jillian was too nice. Griffin and the Spurious Correlations by Krista Wallace Chapter 11, May 13th My lunch with Jillian, followed by a nice quiet evening, had rejuvenated me, so I felt quite generous towards salamanders on Sunday morning. Despite Colin taking over my store hours, I still had lessons to teach, so I had a crazy day ahead of me. In a moment of clarity, I had come up with a plan. I didn't own a car. However, I did have a membership in the car co-op. I rarely used it, but figured today I could justify the cost because of my necessary back-and-forthing to the music store. It was Sunday, and the bus schedule was weird, which would make all my traveling too chaotic. Plus, I had the dubious pleasure of looking forward to dinner at my parents'. Access to a car to get there and back would ease the tension of the evening. I had reserved a car, so I took a bus to the mall near my apartment to pick it up. At the same time, I wisely thought to book a car for the day of Teresa's wedding next Saturday, May 19th. Go me! Congratulating myself on my organization, I drove to the restaurant through a surprising volume of traffic for a Sunday. Still, I made decent time and successfully negotiated the darkness of the parkade by 8.30. I deposited my gear in the rehearsal studio as usual and wondered when Matea would be in. Having had Friday and Saturday off, I assumed we would rehearse as usual today, though I needed to talk to him about my lesson situation. The plan was to find out my baking task for the day and get it started. Then I would dash back to the music store to teach lessons at 10.30 and 11, go back to the restaurant, then back to the store for Trevor's lesson at 1.30, then back to the restaurant. We could squeeze in rehearsals here and there. We had lots of days before the big gig, so I wasn't worried. It would be an insane day, but I could do it. It was times like these when I wondered if I was giving too much to this pastry job. Also, it occurred to me that I had no idea how much this job was paying me per hour. Another thing to feel dumb about. If I'd told my dad I'd taken on a job without finding out my schedule or my level of pay, he would be ashamed of his failure to educate me. Well, I wouldn't burden him with the knowledge. This was all on me. As I stood in the middle of the kitchen tying my apron, I was almost convinced I was nuts. On the other hand, nobody seemed to mind my coming and going at will, despite Rickenbacker telling me I was expected to work full-time hours. Maybe other jobs would be less flexible. See? Always something to be positive about. Sunday was chef's day off. To my joy, Phoenix himself was my immediate supervisor, and I hope you've picked up on my use of irony. I quickly learned that this meant Phoenix could adopt Chef's persona in some sort of exaggerated role-playing game, which, in Phoenix's mind, gave him the power to boss us all around, even though it was plain he didn't know what he was doing. He was, however, wearing a chef's hat, so... Phoenix told me to make shortbread. I have said before that I am not my dad. I have never claimed to be a chef or a baker or even a caterer. But I do know how to make shortbread. Finally, here was a task I could be excited about. Not only that, but it fit in perfectly with my broken-up schedule. 
My lovely assistant Stephen was off, but I wasn't worried. If there was one baking project I could handle on my own, it was shortbread. I got out flour, berry sugar, and butter. Lots of it. Christmas music was playing, although it was May. I didn't even notice right away. It just seemed right to listen to Christmas music while making shortbread. I was already in the kneading phase, and my hands were buried in creamy, buttery, sugary goodness and dusty with flour when Phoenix came into the kitchen with a group of about half a dozen tourists. I'd have thought there would be some regulations against that sort of thing, but whatever. The tourists had cameras and excitedly dashed around taking billions of shots of odd stuff, like not the things I and the other cooks were working on, but of light switches, nesting stacks of mixing bowls, the ceiling fan, the fridge handle, a burner on the stove. Phoenix was giving some sort of spiel about how efficiently his kitchen ran and what a terrific manager he was. His speech was upstaged by his bright floral pullover. As he came by my workstation, he decided to do his Gordon Ramsay impression. He slapped his hand on my table, making me jump. What the bloody hell is this? He adopted a really bad English accent. Is that butter? I looked askance at him. Of course. What the fuck do you think you're doing? Bloody hell! He stuck his finger in my dough and took a taste. Fucking hell, that's putrid! Now, as I mentioned, I am good at making shortbread. I tasted it myself, and it was wonderful. Ire tightened my chest. With all due respect, Phoenix, I've made shortbread dozens of times, and this is how it's supposed to taste. Hotshot, are you? Are you the boss? With patience that deserved a frickin' medal, I said, No, Phoenix, I am not. My sternum was taking a pounding from my heartbeat. Then why the hell are you giving me such attitude? Sweat ran down my sides, sourced from my armpits. I don't know if the tremor in my voice was audible to anyone else, but I sure felt it. I don't understand why you think I'm giving you attitude, Phoenix. I've been doing my best here all week. Shortbread is the one thing I've been asked to do that I know I'm good at. The tourists took my photo. I tried not to scowl at them. Phoenix glared at me for a moment before his expression changed ever so slightly. There was a twitch in the corner of his mouth, and his eyes narrowed just a touch. Time will tell. With the same petulant dispatch as a selfish child who doesn't want to let anyone play with his ball anymore, Phoenix gathered up his little tour and left. I swore a blue streak under my breath while giving the doe a pummeling it did not deserve, but it seemed to understand. The dough mixed, I left it in several large bowls in the refrigerator, washed my hands, and took off my apron. I'll be back to roll that out. Nobody touch it, please, I called to my co-workers. Somebody acknowledged me. I don't know who. I was in a hurry. I ran down the silent corridor to the rehearsal room. Nobody was there. I stood in the middle of the room, tapping my thighs with the low rumblings of panic in my core. Had I missed a call or a text or something? I checked my phone, but there was nothing. Maybe everyone always had a Sunday off, and they just forgot to tell me. Assumed I would know. I kicked myself again for not being more assertive about needing a proper work schedule. Okay, I said to myself. This was not a problem. I was a bit downcast not to see Mateo, but hey, as an adult, I would make myself get over it. Like I said, I wasn't worried about next week's performance, and this way I would be early to the music store. I could help out a bit and make up for not having been around very much. However, traffic was even heavier now, with nothing in the radio traffic report to account for it, and I got to the store with only seven minutes to spare. Han Jun, 16, was already there, plucking away in the practice room. Miraculously, the room didn't smell like Melissa's bourbon vomit— it smelled more like toasted marshmallows. <laughs> Did you have something sweet for breakfast? I asked him. Huh? N never mind. Maybe the cleaners have changed products. Bacon and eggs and sausages all the way, baby! This was quite the outburst from the usually soft-spoken boy. Oh. Carrying on with the lesson was the best way past this awkward moment. So how are you doing with aerial boundaries? Han Jun was my best student, and I was always kind of excited about lessons with him. 
He'd really gotten into Michael Hedges, so together we'd been playing around with some of Hedges' unusual techniques, the hammer-on, pull-off, and slap harmonics. It wouldn't be perfect today. Michael Hedges' music was insanely tough. He had always sounded like there was more than one of him playing at once. Frankly, I was not qualified to teach amazing stuff like that, but I saw my job as guiding and helping my students to figure stuff out on their own. Besides, every teacher dreams of having a student who challenges him or herself and strives to be that good. That Hanjun had the desire was a gift unto itself. Hanjun started to play some of those amazingly cool harmonics with the hammer on, and it sounded really good for a learner. Holy wow, Han, that sounded terrific. He burst into tears. Uh-oh, I swallowed and shifted to the very edge of my seat. What is it? I wanted to touch him. He sobbed. Hanjun, what's up? I sob, made sob, uh, sob, mistake. I rocked back and forth, my mouth opening and shutting repeatedly. I could have argued with him, told him that no, he hadn't, at least not so I'd noticed anyway, but I didn't want to trivialize his feelings. Besides, it didn't really matter what I thought at this point. There followed a counseling session wherein I assured him he sounded great, and his playing perfectly was not part of my expectations, but I was incredibly proud of him for his hard work and dedication. Do you know what inspired Michael Hedges to play guitar? Hanjun sniffed. No. Puff the magic dragon, I told him. So if he got that good as a result of Puff, how good could you be as a result of Michael Hedges? I didn't know if my reasoning made any sense. I tried my best, but I don't know how helpful I was to him being a bit of a mess myself. We mucked about together a bit more, then I had him play something simpler, and he felt pretty good about that, just in time to leave. I took a moment to take a deep breath and a drink of water. I was already exhausted, and the day wasn't even half over. All I really wanted to do was crawl into a corner somewhere and sleep for six days. No such luck. My next student's hair was significantly shorter than it had been the last time I'd seen her. I indicated it. I missed you last week. My grin should have let Jennifer know it was fine. Instead, her lip quivered. I was really sick. I thought you were getting your hair cut. Is that what my mom told you? Well, she told Brian, but yeah. She rolled her eyes. I left it there. Let's go in and see how you're doing with the etude. Jennifer hadn't practiced. It was obvious. In fact, it was as if she had unpracticed. Her playing was a knitted sweater that had come halfway unraveled. Okay, I said in a patient, kind voice. You're having a bit of trouble there, huh? Let's go back to... No, I didn't. She looked at me, sincerely puzzled. I smiled, more pretending to be patient than actually being patient. What do you mean? Sure you did. I heard quite a bit of stumbling, but it's okay. I'll help you work. She sat up straighter and jutted her jaw at me. It was perfect. I practiced for hours. That's how you told me to play it last time. I wanted to yell, why on earth would I tell you to play it like crap, you little turd? But reason prevailed, and I took a deep breath instead. Jennifer, let's try it again. Just the melody line, a bit slower. That does it! She leapt to her feet. Guitar in hand, she stormed out the door of the practice room. I set my guitar on its stand and followed her. She was already up at the front desk, screaming at Brian. I want a new teacher. One who has her shit together would be nice. Brian, with the patience of a person or thing with a lot of patience, said, What's the trouble? Jennifer wheeled around, pointing at me as if we were in the big reveal scene in a murder mystery and I was the killer. She is a fraud! I had come here today in an enormous rush. I had told myself I could get through it. I had shoved aside the incredible stress I was under as a result of the emotional elevator that morning, not to mention the week I had just been through, shoved it into a little box called That Other Thing, and sealed it tight so I could let it go for the time I was dealing with teenagers. But the week that was seemed to have found some cracks in the box. 
My desire to smash the glass case displaying the selection of tuners and guitar capos manifested in my clenched fists. The words, your haircut looks like ass, came to my lips, but didn't manage to pass through. The fingernails digging into my palms kept me together. I closed my eyes. I opened them and just shrugged in disbelief. I don't know what to say, Brian. I don't know what the problem is, but if she wants another teacher, then fine. I shut my mouth and stabbed figurative red-hot pokers at Jennifer with my eyes. Brian pressed the air with his palms. I'm sure there's a way we can talk this through, but for now, let's maybe just leave it. Jennifer, when your mom gets here, we can sort it out. I won't charge you for this time. Brian continued to talk to her. I told him I'd be back later for my one thirty lesson, annoyed as hell at having wasted time with Jennifer when I needed to get back to Salamanders to roll out my shortbread. I gathered up my stuff and went outside to gulp some fresh air while I loaded my gear into the car. The air in the drive shallowed the furrow in my brow, and I felt a bit better by the time I got to the restaurant. Mateo still wasn't there, so I came to the conclusion there would be no rehearsal today. Regret battled for supremacy with relief, along with its sidekick, exclusion. Why hadn't anybody told me? I bit my lip and set that aside. There was no evidence that anyone had tampered with my dough, but I tasted it for quality control, just in case. It was divine. As I rolled it, I considered which shape to go with. Past experience in this venue told me it didn't really matter what shape I chose. The dough would probably take on the shapes of famous literary figures or something. With that in mind, I decided to just go with fingers. I poked it all over with the fork, cut the dough. Phoenix and his tour group came through the kitchen again. Was it a new tour group? The same one? I couldn't fathom what he might have done with them over the past couple of hours I'd been absent. A meal, perhaps? But really, what was so extraordinary about this place that anyone would want to come on tour? Nevertheless, they took photos as I transferred the cookies onto baking sheets. No, they didn't change shape. Several dozen of the beauties would soon be ready to be snapped up by the patrons. I checked the clock. Not enough time to bake them now, so I stacked the trays in the fridge, each layer perpendicular to the one below. I snuck out to the car. I got to the store in record time. Brian looked at me funny until I noticed I was still wearing my apron and shoved it in my backpack. Trevor was a good kid, keen on learning. For the duration of his lesson, I fidgeted, waiting for him to break into something out-of-this-world magnificent like last week when he'd played Bach's Bourree. He started his newest tune. He'd wanted to learn Rainy Day People for his mum's birthday, so I'd given him a simplified version. He played it so well, I felt the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. I didn't want to overreact and accuse him of something like I did last week. You must really like that one, huh? I braced myself to hear him say, What do you mean? He didn't. Instead, he blushed in a charming way and grinned. Yeah. Great job, I told him. I relaxed after that, convinced I might even get through the rest of this day without anything unexpected coming along to ruin it. Silly me. I had done it again. Back at the restaurant, I took the raw cookies out of the fridge while the ovens heated. They baked until they were perfect. I ate one, melt on the tongue as I'd planned. A little later, Phoenix called all the cooks and kitchen staff into the dining room where he had assembled his tourists. Really? Still? They were still taking photos of cracks in the floor and towels. Very artsy. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have a taste test fest. All the kitchen staff cheered and clapped and jumped up and down. Except me. I didn't know what he was talking about. From out of nowhere, several servers appeared with plates of each of the desserts we'd been creating all day. Wait, who? I had never seen these people before. Who were they and where had they come from? Was I really so unaware of my fellow staff? I felt rather small just then, shrinking under the blanket of guilt I'd pulled over myself. The servers placed the plates of dessert on the tables in front of the tourists and other customers. Another three servers passed out forms and pencils. Now, dear guests, we will introduce each delight along with its creator. You may taste it and tell the chef your thoughts and then give it a score. The winner will get a day off with double pay. How fantastic would that be? Why hadn't Phoenix chosen to do this on a day when I'd made puff pastry or creme brulee? No matter, my shortbread was damn good. 
First up is Jeff. Tell us about your item, Jeff. Phoenix sounded like the host of a cooking competition as he gestured to a dish of what looked like green jelly with a large chunk of something purple in it. Jeff stepped forward, his chest puffed up with pride. The dessert I have created is called Lime Jelly with Zip. It is not the simple bowl of gelatin you might expect. It has a secret ingredient, which I think you will find gives it an unusual punch. The guests eagerly tucked in. They squealed with delight. What did you use to make such wonderful zip? asked a blonde woman. Red onion. Holy crap, green jelly with red onion? Yum. More irony, just in case you weren't sure. To my amazement, the prevailing comment seemed to be, This is marvelous. <laughs> There's no accounting for taste. Samuel presented a basic date square. Tamara brought forth something that looked like a dish of shredded lettuce and called it Green Delight. Farhad unveiled sliced bananas in a bowl of milk. Carly's dessert was a jelly roll made of bread and a jar of store-bought jam. Zhang boasted about using store-brand Neapolitan ice cream in a box of Fig Newtons. Throughout this, you may have noticed I knew all their names. Please don't ask me when or how I learned them. I vowed to stop questioning that sort of thing. Then it was my turn. In all honesty, I was not feeling cocky. I was ambivalent to the proceedings, truly, because I just didn't understand them. The rules were odd, to say the least. However, I was able to proffer my contribution with confidence. I made traditional shortbread from scratch. I tried not to emphasize the last bit. The guests took sizable bites. They almost instantly spat it out, saying things like, Good Lord! and Ech! and That is awful! and Claw! Claw! Cripes, what was wrong? Phoenix sneered. Griffin, did you taste your dough? Of course! My face was turning red and hot and numb. I tasted the dough before I rolled it out, and I even tasted a cookie when they came out of the oven. Phoenix sniffed. He looked around at the patrons and his tourists, chuckling. What do you say, folks? Shall we get Griffin, our self-proclaimed expert pastry chef, to taste her own baking? I never said that. My protestations were drowned out by howls and cheers of witch-hunt proportions. They sounded fuller and louder than could be produced by a gathering of this size. I felt like a gladiator in the Colosseum. Phoenix offered me a plate of my own shortbread. I bit into one. It was ghastly. Try mixing some dish soap into Play-Doh and baking it, and you'll be close to what this tasted like. The entire crowd, including the kitchen staff, roared with laughter at my reaction. They took pictures of the ceiling and the underside of tables. I could only hope there was gum there. I turned on Phoenix. Damn it, I don't know what you did, Phoenix, but you did something. That shortbread, my shortbread, was wonderful. I wiped my mouth on a napkin. He wiggled his eyebrows at me, which gave me the idea that he confirmed my accusation. I loathed him. The expert pastry chef, ladies and gentlemen. Phoenix clapped and instigated hateful laughter and mob-like applause from the room. She's also in the house band, believe it or not. Let's hope she plays and sings better than she bakes. My body had gone so rigid my hair hurt, and I wanted nothing more than to scream at him and cry. But the tourists would have loved that. As I pulled the napkin away from my mouth... The knife was in my hand, the knife I had left at home underneath a massive 700-pound volume of Shakespeare. The hairs on my neck stood as straight as flagpoles. Phoenix had planted himself right next to me, and he clapped and laughed. The knife had a really nice weight to it. The tip twinkled in the dim light. My hand lifted of its own volition. The knife came terrifyingly close to Phoenix's ribcage. I had to get out of there before I did something I'd regret. The crowd noise accompanied me as I pelted from the dining room, flinging the knife into a dusty corner on the floor. Back in the kitchen, I rinsed out my mouth. The last tray of my shortbread still lay on the work table. I picked one up and sniffed it. I bit it hesitantly. It melted on my tongue. I grabbed the tray and ran with it into the dining room. Try these ones, I cried. To an empty room. Where did everyone go? 
I asked Phoenix, who sat at a table facing me, his hands folded before him as if he'd called a meeting. They left after you tried to poison them. There was a mistake. This is my shortbread. I don't know what that other stuff was. He merely smiled. I was just so tired. I had had two days off, but you'd never know it, and I hadn't seen Matteo in three days, which sounded ridiculously pitiful, but he generally was a highlight of a day spent at Salamander's. As if to rub salt in my already raw wounds, I was expected at my parents' house for dinner. I had to commit to it on pain of hearing comments like, Is it too much to ask to have you over every second Sunday, since every Sunday seems to be too hard for you? Can you spare one evening out of fourteen for the woman who sacrificed so much to raise you to be a responsible young woman? <laughs> Seriously, it's just not worth it. So in spite of the day, the week, I'd had, I put yet another measure of my sanity on the line and drove to my folks' house. I patted myself on the back about having a car, since this allowed me to make a hasty retreat if necessary. I made one stop along the way and drove through the damp twilight along the old familiar road. I looked forward to seeing Jillian, and to be honest, my dad and I had always had a pretty strong connection. On the other hand, the thought of my mother kept my esophagus constricted with trepidation. It's important to note that I arrived on time. Seemingly feeling ripped off for not being able to complain, my mother said, Well, look who's on time for a change. What did you forget? Ha! I had her, regardless of the sting of her comment. I didn't forget anything. Look, I even brought a bottle of wine. I held it out triumphantly, glad I had taken the time to stop on the way. She took it and untwisted the bag from around the neck of the bottle. You know, they have such charming gift bags for wine these days, so one doesn't have to present a bottle in the brown paper bag from the liquor store. She'd probably have preferred that I forgot the wine so her criticism would have been easier, but I had to admire her creativity in still being able to come up with something. Sigh. With Phoenix's smarmy voice fresh in my memory, I was near to snapping. I'm surprised my tongue didn't bleed, I was biting it so hard. I deserve a medal for all the things I manage not to say. After a pause, I asked, And what did people do before gift bags were invented? I tried to mask the sarcasm. You'd have to ask her if I was successful. Honestly, Griffin, you're as aware of the real world as a badger. That didn't make any sense at all. What? Mother rolled her eyes and sighed as she stuck my contribution in the back of a kitchen cupboard, where it would be easy to forget to ever serve it until it turned to vinegar, whereupon she could blame me for buying bad wine. Picking up her wooden spoon, she stirred the gravy. Yep, my mum really knows how to make a person feel good. Plus, I was freezing. My folks believed in keeping the house several degrees below what penguins would consider room temperature, and I'd forgotten a sweater. That alone was enough to make me cranky. Jillian walked in with a familiar styrofoam container. Our mom tapped the spoon on the edge of the pot and set it on the spoon rest. She gave my sister a big hug. Jillian, dear, what a marvelous surprise! Gelato! Mom took the little box and gave her a kiss on the cheek. She continued to look at Jillian as she talked to me. Here's a girl who knows how to attend Sunday dinner. When she'd been released, Jillian gave my arm a squeeze. You could just leave that on the counter and it would be fine, I said with a massive shiver. She scrunched her nose in a silent giggle, then put her contribution in the freezer. I'd hate her if she weren't such a damn lovely person. Besides, it didn't matter. If I'd brought gelato, I would have heard, oh, store-bought ice cream. You know, sometimes people bring homemade things to dinner. It wasn't Jillian's fault our mother had a clear favorite. Dad walked in wearing khakis and a golf shirt. He'd had a haircut since I last saw him. Hey, what kind of luck to find three beautiful women in the same room at once. He put an arm around each of us girls and gave us a hug and a kiss. Dad never made me feel less than I was. Then there was Mom. Did you ask your daughter if she saw the news this week? No, I didn't, Adele, and I wish you wouldn't make such a big issue out of it. Dad took the dish of potatoes from her hands. He swung around and carried it to the table. I spooned broccoli into a stoneware bowl and handed it to Jillian, who also grabbed the butter dish and set both on the table. I'm not making an issue out of it, but she should be aware of these things. Why should she? Dad said, returning to the kitchen. It has nothing to do with her. 
He picked up the carving knife. Instinctively, I checked my pockets. No knife. Oh, Henry, it does so. Mom whisked gravy with vigor. She is standing right here, I pointed out. Jillian had sat on a kitchen stool and her eyebrows were raised in an oh brother expression. Look, you might as well just tell me what you're talking about. Dad sliced into the meat, shaking his head. It's nothing, Griff. Paul Webb on the Society Report made a big thing over the gay cake top on Taryn Snifter's wedding cake. To be clear, it wasn't a problem that such a thing as a gay cake top should exist. It was a problem that it looked like this caterer put one on top of this particular cake. But that was Jason, I cried. Calvin told me it was. The guy could have said it was a, a, a prank or a mistake. Nope. Did he actually use your name? I was aghast. Dad sighed. Afraid so. Oh, bloody hell. My mood was getting darker and darker. Mom saved the coup de grace until we were sitting down to eat. She served us wine that I hadn't brought. It was red and a much cheaper one than the brand I had chosen. Typical. I doused my potato in gravy and took a bite and cut into my meat. Overcooked. How surprising. Well, Jillian, Mum said with an innocent smile that frightened me. She took a dainty bite of broccoli. We haven't heard much from you. How about you tell us how your week has been? I looked at my sister in alarm. She rolled her eyes, finishing the act with a dagger look at our mother. My week has been fine, Mom. I didn't believe her, which is exactly what my mother wanted when she replied, Oh, now someone's telling fish stories. She glanced sidelong at me. Mom, I was absolutely not going to bring it up, and I recall asking you not to. Mom shrugged her shoulders disingenuously and gave a long-suffering look at Jillian. There's no sense protecting her, Jillian, dear. I mean, the rest of us are all suffering the consequences of her poor choices. Why should she be spared? I ignored the remark and placed my fork down on the green placemat. You might as well tell me, Jill, you can't make my Sunday dinner any less enjoyable. Griffin! Mother looked positively wounded. Dad ate meat. Jillian looked as if someone had told her her dog had died. You know Marky, the artistic director of the dance studio? Well, she came to me on Friday and said Carl Snifter has threatened to pull his funding if I get the prima role in Faust. A giant fist constricted my chest. I had to take an enormous gulp of cheap wine. On Friday? So that's what was bothering you yesterday. I knew there was something... I didn't want to tell you. I didn't want you worrying about it or beating yourself up since I don't blame you. But that's extortion. Snifter can't do that. Who's going to stop him? Well, Marky, for one. The board of directors. Marky just told you last month it was yours. I know, but Taryn made a scene, and it's too late to change the budget, and if Snifter pulls his funding, the show will fall through. Oh, God. I dropped my forehead into my hand. Griffin, I hope you're not blaming yourself. This is not your fault. It's Taryn being a scrag. That was the worst thing I'd ever heard my sister say about anyone. This tells everyone who she really is, Jillian said. The other dancers aren't idiots. They'll know what this is all about. I don't blame you, and I'll bet you nobody else will either. A medley of emotions running through my digestive tract made my food taste like cardboard. Outrage at Carl Snifter and hatred for his spoiled, undeserving daughter. Dismay at the artistic director's reaction, even though she was in a very difficult position. Most of all, the love I felt from Jillian preemptively protecting me. I lifted my eyes to her with what I hoped she could see was sincere gratitude. Mother, however, wasn't finished. Jillian, you are a kind, forgiving girl, but you mark my words, everyone still knows who was really behind this. As if her words weren't direct enough, she pointed her fork at me. That was it. Why was I here? Why subject myself to this kind of abuse? Weren't families supposed to, I don't know, love each other, stick up for one another, be there for each other in times of need? Why did she always make me feel like moving to the Arctic? I almost wished I had brought some of the shortbread Phoenix had tampered with to poison her. Words spilled out of my mouth and tumbled all over the table. You're the fucking master of subtlety, aren't you? I said. I have so had it. My knife and fork met the table with a loud clatter and echoed through the carpetless dining room.
I pushed my chair back with a loud scrape, which I knew would horrify my mother, who was ridiculously overprotective of her hardwood floors. Just in case anyone is interested, I've had one hell of a week too, and you, Mom, have a bizarre way of showing that you want me at Sunday dinner. I swear, if Paul Webb doesn't keep blaming me for shit in the society report, you'll be the one phoning him to give him more dirt on me. I picked up a slice of meat. As if to punctuate my point, I said, This meat is overcooked, and why don't you ever turn on the goddamn heat in this place? I glared at her. I'm out of here. Mom burst into what I now knew were pretend-hurt tears as I stormed out of the dining room. I got as far as the top of the stairs and stopped. Turning around, I went to the kitchen cupboard where Mom had tucked the bottle of wine she had received with such scorn. I snatched it and bolted down the stairs to the back door. All the raised voices didn't stop me. I shoved my feet into my boots as I heard thumping feet pursuing me down the stairs. Not waiting for them, I went out and slammed the door behind me. Griffin! Jillian. Griff, please! I stopped, hand on the car door handle. My sister had run outside in the rain with no footwear. She grabbed me and forced me to face her. Don't listen to her. Don't you dare listen to her. Dad is up there lambasting her this minute, and you'll never hear me make excuses for her. Griffin, I promise you, I didn't want to tell you. I wanted to wait until it all blew over. I couldn't meet her gaze. It will blow over, Griffin. And all this about the dance studio? Just never mind. It'll work out somehow. Marky isn't happy about it either. No cultural organization is interested in pandering. It's just that this is so last minute. Now, Griffin? She waited until I said, yeah? Something nobody has bothered to say all evening. How are you? I nearly lost it. I hugged her a long time. In the car, every radio station was playing Oh, What a World by Rufus Wainwright. Once I got home, I put a Michael Hedges album on the turntable, cranked up the heat, and opened the bottle of wine. I settled in my armchair and warned my sorrows that they were facing their doom. Chapter 12, May 14th in the middle of the night, I got up and drank a couple of glasses of water, adding to the ones I'd drunk at bedtime. This would counteract the effects of the copious amounts of wine I had drunk all by myself. But heck, I'd started early, having cut out of Sunday dinner, and it had been worth it. My head was a bit wobbly as I headed back to bed, but I was confident I would feel better in the morning. I grabbed my pillow to fluff it up and felt a stab of alarm to see the goddamned knife under it. There was absolutely nothing special about it. It was shiny, and it had a nice weight to it. Why did it keep showing up? I snatched it up and stomped into the kitchen, opened the drawer, and mixed it in with all the other knives. Maybe they'd develop a friendship, and it wouldn't desire my company so damn much. I stormed back to bed and managed to fall asleep. After punching my pillow with a hand, I now noticed was tingling. I'd been involved with the band and salamanders for an entire week. The previous Monday, I had been expected at the restaurant first thing in the morning, so I assumed this week would be the same. This was, as I've said, the first time I'd had a job where I didn't get a weekly schedule letting me know my shifts. Salamanders seemed to do a lot of things differently. By eight o'clock Monday morning, as I left to catch the bus, I felt fine, thanks to all the water. The tune being played by the guy upstairs, and oddly enough some other residents in the neighborhood whose windows must have been opened since I could hear it loud and clear, was Good Day Sunshine. I wondered which radio station was so popular. I decided this was a good omen and boded well for a good day at work, yesterday's nonsense by Phoenix notwithstanding. And to be sure, he pretty much stayed out of my way at first. I caught glimpses of his red suit flashing around, but he didn't venture near me. Perhaps he knew he'd gone too far with a cookie-swapping escapade. That had to have been what happened. And he was afraid I might pull a knife on him or something if he came too close. <laughs> Matteo had not yet arrived in the rehearsal room when I dumped my stuff, though one of the other guys was there. I said good morning, but did not allow myself to ask where they had all been yesterday, and if Matteo would be there today. There. 
Look, look, see Griffin manage her emotions. See Griffin walk fast. See Griffin walk to the kitchen with her nose slightly elevated. See Griffin exhibit professional detachment. As per chef's instructions, I set out to make apple strudel. Stephen, I told him how happy I was to see him, found the recipe in a book called The Treasure of Mortal Mindlessness. Who comes up with these ideas? But there on page 23 was what we needed. We'd already mastered the puff pastry part, so we dove in with the mixing and buttering and folding. At an appropriate time, I left to join rehearsal for a while. To my great, albeit restrained, delight, Matteo was there. I took a risk. I had worked on A Case of You all evening on acoustic while drinking wine and had pretty much mastered it, even with Joni's unconventional tuning. While everyone was setting up, I started playing it, just for a lark, avoiding eye contact with Matteo. It was the first time we'd been in the same room since our little encounter in the kitchen. I was embarrassed as hell, a bit because I felt like I was showing off a little, but also because the lyrics meant a lot to me, especially with him in the room. I hadn't heard him approach. When I felt his hand on my shoulder as I played, I felt a swoop like when a fast-moving elevator comes to a sudden stop. A fiery blush overtook my face and neck like a nasty case of hives, and my voice faltered a little, but I kept going. Having him stand over me like that while I played, while I played for him, was intimidating to say the least. If anyone was worthy of judging my guitar playing, it was Matteo. When I finished, he didn't say anything for several moments of eternity. At long last, he said, Wow, that was gorgeous. He entered my peripheral vision and came around in front of me. He sat on the chair opposite, leaning toward me. Griffin, you are so talented. That is a tough song to play, and you did it... Well, it was perfect. I'm sure I was smiling like a clown. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Thanks. His deep blue eyes seemed to drink me in, and I wanted nothing more than to drown in them. My whole body tingled right down to my nethers, and the way he looked at me sparked a flame in my depths. He smiled and slowly licked his lips. The flame in my depths reacted to his smile and lip-licking as if they were a bellows. My desire for him and his apparent desire for me made me tremble all over as if I'd been wrapped in bubble wrap where each bubble was a popcorn maker. He stood up. I stood up and put down my guitar. He stepped forward. I stepped forward. I've missed you, he said. Really? I squeaked. Could he hear the throbbing of my heart? He smelled like cinnamon and almonds. He reached over and his hand was warm and soft on my cheek. I closed my eyes involuntarily. I opened them, not wanting to miss a thing. Our lips met, soft and moist, and my loins responded instantly. I parted my lips and his tongue played lightly with mine. Oh, how I wanted him! But here? Now? Not the place or the time. Reason took over. I guess we have to rehearse. His voice was hoarse with desire and his eyes dim with disappointment, which I'm dead certain was mirrored in mine. I could hardly speak. Yeah. Do you want to maybe go out somewhere together? Maybe after work tomorrow? Had I heard him correctly? Um, what? Oh no, I had done it again. Flipped on the brainless switch. Go out? With me? Matteo chuckled softly and smiled like he was kind of confused. Yes, with you. Why is that so strange? Pulling myself together, I dredged up some self-confidence and said, Yeah, that'd be great. Great, he said, taking my hand and stroking the back of it with his thumb. I'd like that more than just about anything. With mental acuity I had not possessed in days, I recalled my responsibilities. I have to teach a lesson at six, though. I was fearful he might say, never mind then, but he didn't. He said, why don't I drive you there and wait for you? Great! Cool! We pulled apart and a chill shivered through the room as if the air conditioning had turned on and there was a vent right above us. I even looked up. There was no vent. When I looked down again, Matteo had headed across the room. I was about six feet in the air. I think I even giggled during rehearsal. 
I kept on giggling, internally at least, as I returned to the kitchen to take the next steps in the strudel process. Phoenix butted his nose in at one point and seemed to find nothing positive to say. He merely sniffed. "'Do you ever even try to find something positive to say?' I asked him cheerfully. I didn't bother hiding the fact that I did not hold him in very high regard. He looked me up and down as if I were dressed in a dragon costume. "'Oh, believe me, I'm trying,' he sneered. God, I hated him. If it weren't for the band, I would be so out of here. Despite Phoenix's best efforts to throw Stephen and me off, the strudel turned out well. The apple mixture was easy to make with cinnamon and ground almonds, and it made a lot, so I scooped it liberally onto the rolled-out pastry. When I baked the strudel, the apples seemed to multiply, and the pastry puffed up until it was as tall as a layer cake. It was the biggest, puffiest strudel I'd ever seen, and delicately flaky like gold leaf. I hoped it would taste as good as it looked. When he saw it, Phoenix said, I guess if our patrons find something that looks like puke appetizing, we may sell some of it. Nice guy. I guess that might actually pass for a positive comment in some circles. I hurried back to rehearsal, not even caring what became of the strudel. I figured I had done my job, which was making it. Whether or not it found its way to tables was someone else's responsibility. I wasn't getting paid enough to... Oh, wait, I still didn't know about that, dang it. Never mind, I was there for the music. We worked through almost the entire first set, fixing chords and riffs and making sure the kick drum and I were totally locked in. We called it a night, and I put my guitar away, feeling more thrilled about my own playing and more excited about the upcoming gig than I'd ever felt before. So I was thinking about other tunes we could learn, I said. Oh yeah? We're always up for learning new songs, Matteo said. Yeah, with our harmonies, I was thinking we could do Sweet Judy Blue Eyes and maybe Galileo. Matteo's face lit up like a streetlight at dusk. Those are great suggestions. Anything else? I chuckled, hoping it wasn't too much of a stretch to suggest it. With both of our guitars and with... For the life of me, I couldn't remember the bass player's name. Such a solid bass player. I thought we might try Starship Trooper. Not for this next gig, of course, but to work on for the future. In a couple of strides, Matteo was near enough to lay his hand on my cheek. That's an awesome idea. I leaned just slightly into his hand. I loved that he hadn't argued with me or doubted that either of us, well, especially me, would be able to handle the jeweling guitar solos in the last section of the song. Matteo believed in me as I had never allowed myself to do, even when I was studying with my private instructor. This is what comes of maturity. I said goodnight to the guys, half hoping Matteo would offer me a ride home, but he didn't. No worries. I had tomorrow to look forward to. Where would we go? What would we do? The weather had changed. The rain was out to rival Niagara Falls, and I had no umbrella. It's Raining Again was playing as I walked by the bar on the corner. In the convenience store near the bus stop, the radio played Here Comes the Rain Again and Standin' in the Rain. I was soaked by the time I boarded the bus. Six blocks from the train station, the bus broke down. I waited for a bit because I figured it was just the trolley poles getting disconnected from the wires, which was not an uncommon occurrence. The driver got off the bus and seemed to be trying to reconnect them, but then she didn't get back on board. I cupped my hands to the window, trying to see where she'd gone. I couldn't see anything in the murk. I was alone. After about ten minutes, I got off the bus rather than waiting. I didn't see another bus coming, so I hoofed it along the six blocks to the station, a song about raindrops continuing to fall on my head playing somewhere. Drenched by this time, I caught the train, and it wasn't until we got to Main Street Station that we were told the train couldn't get to the next station because of a police incident, whatever that meant. The bugger about the timing was that the next station was where I had to change trains, and if I'd known I couldn't get there, I'd have taken a different route home. I trudged down the station's stairs and found a relevant bus stop. The bus I boarded took me partway to the next station, but I had to transfer on the corner of Main and Broadway. I watched the river of water course along the road, the storm drains having a time of sucking it all down. Large pools had formed along the curb and street corners were beaches extending into lakes of water. 
Dunderhead that I was, I missed the significance of this until a car came by. The driver made no effort to avoid the puddle. An icy wall of water splashed up over my head and doused the entire length of my body like a tsunami. I gasped with shock as water went down the front and back of my jacket, the front and back of my pants, and filled both shoes. My hair flattened against my head. I could scarcely breathe and shook uncontrollably. I was almost sure my heart had stopped for a moment. The driver did a U-turn and came back the other way. I could almost have sworn it was Phoenix in the driver's seat. I didn't scream. I didn't cry. I couldn't even find it in myself to swear. I just stood there and whimpered for a little while as the wind ensured that I experienced every millimeter of wet fabric on my person. Eventually, I was able to take a very deep breath and let it out in a controlled manner. I was fucking freezing, but I had got through the initial blast. Oh, no! Teeth chattering, I not only realized my left hand gripped the handle of my acoustic guitar case, but I remembered the case on my back containing my Telecaster. Oh, no! Oh, no! Oh, no! Panic was another icy puddle, and I hastened to a dryish spot under the awning of a shop a few steps back from the sidewalk. I gently set the acoustic case down and used my right hand to pry my frozen left hand open. My fingers hardly worked on the clasps. All was good in there, the plush not even damp. Trembling, I shrugged the backpack straps off and swung that case around, my chest tight with worry. I laid it on top of the other case and unzipped it. A short sob escaped my throat upon confirming that my beloved guitar was dry. I recovered and zipped it up again before another car could come along. Someone somewhere was playing the carpenter's song about Mondays and rainy days. How frickin' appropriate! And that's another thing, this damn music I kept hearing, even when there wasn't any obvious source, and nobody seemed to hear it but me. Once this gig on Sunday was over, I'd need to see my doctor. There were quite a few bizarre things on the list to make me think I was losing my mind. I mean, seriously, losing my mind. It was starting to scare me. A bus finally came to take me the rest of the way to the station. As I boarded, the driver yelled at me to stop dripping. Yeah, sure, dude, I'll get right on that. The bus ride was even less pleasant than you are probably imagining, since it wasn't long enough for me to dry out even a little bit. I was soaked through, and I huddled in my seat, shivering. The train ride that followed was no improvement, and I never did get warm that whole damn trip. I'd left the restaurant at 5.30 and didn't get home until 7.45. In that time, I had heard tons of songs about frickin' rain. They were playing everywhere. They suggested I sing in the rain, that the rain was in the early morning, and that it was purple. They asked if I had seen it, and asked who will stop it, and told me they would carry on crying in it, even that somebody with blue eyes would do said crying. It was suggested I blame the rain, and more than one person wished it would rain for fuck's sake. I was starting to think the music was somehow in my head. As I boarded the bus to head up the hill to my apartment, Ella sang to me about how into each life some precipitation must fall, and I wanted to yell at her that I had had quite enough thank you very fucking much. I had to wring streams of water out of everything, and I mean everything, into the bathtub, and then I had a great long hot shower to try to warm up. It took ages, especially since I found myself thinking about the soft moistness of Mateo's lips and his eyes and his tongue and, well. After, I spent the evening playing guitar. I played and sang through Gotta Have You for Teresa's wedding and then worked through a few trouble spots in the songs on the list for Sunday. I was irritated, though, because no matter what I played, I was distracted by music from other apartments. All songs about rain, which didn't even surprise me anymore. Beatles and Dylan and Billie Holiday and Eddie Rabbit. I gave in and started playing along with them. Later, I lay in bed listening to the buckets of rain slapping my windows and among it, hearing a familiar bass line from the apartment behind mine. I couldn't hear the melody or anything, so it took me a while to figure out what song it was, but I always take that on as a challenge. I figured it out. It was Riders on the Storm. Yep, that sounds like rain in Vancouver, all right. 
And now Griffin has a date with Mateo to look forward to. I can't wait. Tune in next week when Griffin says, well, that's goofy. If you're enjoying the story, pop on over to coffee.com, that's K-O-F-I, and maybe drop a toonie in my virtual guitar case. The link is in the episode description. I have been doing storytelling busking for 70 episodes now, if you can believe it. I actually really like rain. I've probably said that before. I don't much care for driving in the rain, particularly at night, because... There's so much light reflecting all over, and it's kind of hard to see. But I don't find it dreary. I find it cozy. We had some great camping trips in the rain, too. We have all these great big tarps to sling up over the tent and the picnic table. We created a sort of vestibule, like a porch outside the tent. And we would sit there on our camping chairs with our hot chocolate, all cozy and protected from the rain. And I'd read aloud to the kids, pretty sure I read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory there. Or we'd sit at the table and play games like Mealborn and the Mad Card Game, or even Skimnoddle's Dice Game. I've always done lots of writing on camping trips, too. Listen to the rain dripping in the trees and sit with my notebook and find out what Kier and her friends were up to. So many soggy notebooks. And those are some of the many reasons I appreciate my family for enjoying camping in the rain, for allowing me to read to you, which fills me with joy, and for giving me so much space to write. Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. Cheers, David and Sharon. Thanks, Phil, for the guitar solo. And thanks so much to you for listening. Now, go be fantastic.